As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. It is a board gaming podcast about board games. And we also gaze into the stars and predict the future in gaming, Mark. We already predicted this already. We predicted that Gen Con would be cancelled. We predicted that there was going to be a terraforming Mars big box. We've got our, our finger on the pulse. We know everything that's going down. Well, you did predict that Reiner Knizia was going to win an Academy Award and that Simone Luciani was going to win the Nobel Peace Prize, and neither of those have happened yet. Wait for it, Mark. Okay. Things are working in the background. I'm waiting for you to be declared America's next top supermodel. <laughs> That's on the back burner. That one, that was the long shot. That was that was the one, you know. Don't sell yourself short, Walker. I just think that Naomi is jealous of you. That's all. It's true. So on this podcast, we talk about board games. We're going to be talking about the games we played this week. We're going to be talking about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to be talking about our feature game, which is Aristea. Excellent enunciation there, Walker. And to do all of this, I'm with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Always good. So what did you get to play this week? I got to play some more Commands and Colors Napoleonics. Got to play as the Russians, which are definitely my favorite nationality in Napoleonic's wargaming. Got to play as the British as well. This is the new enthusiasm of Dr. Stallone. He's fascinated by Napoleonic warfare and the absurdity of it, so we've been playing a lot of that on Vassal. And I have to say that I really do appreciate the system, and I know that this is true because I, I can look at the ridiculous swings of fortune in the dice and be okay with it. I'm able to let go of my angst and my normal ire when my infantry units get wiped out unreasonably on a three-die result, showing precise results that my opponent needed, or vice versa. I'd say the most recent scenario was one of those classic commands and color scenarios that was in no way balanced, where my units start off right next to a village, and all they have to do is just take, take move one step, and they're ensconced in a city, whereas my opponent has to march over a fordable river in order to get to me, and they just got destroyed by withering musket fire. So... I have to say that I, I, I never ha I can never take Commands and Colors games too seriously, both for their historical ab abstractions and for the ridiculous absence of balance, but I still enjoy it a great deal. I really enjoy being able to explore the system a little bit more, again, especially given that Vassal is a very, very good context in which to do it, and I've been enjoying my subsequent plays, and that is just a brief update on my continued experiences with Commands and Colors Napoleonics. Well, I didn't get to play very many games this week, only two, in fact. The first one is Wingspan. I played it with the solo version. It's got a very interesting sort of atoma for Wingspan. It's sort of, you know, this particular solo thing is all based on what turn you're in. So it's going to, you know, do things based on, on the turn. And you look up what the goal is for that particular turn and it's, it gets extra cubes or, you know, gives you a, like a generic number on, you know, so, so a lot of, a lot of the things in wingspan is have X number of birds in this particular area. So you just look at the little atoma. It says, well, if you're in round three, then the atoma's base number is going to be five plus or minus these cubes that it gets from these cards that you're flipping every turn. So it works, you know, reasonably well. I imagine playing against the atoma, you have far more player interaction with your opponent than you do in an actual human game 100 
although you know playing it i'm i'm beginning to wonder if you know i'm i'm not i'm not comparing it to puerto rico but just in the case that it it, it seems to be a game that plays itself no like none of the mechanics none of anything else just the fact that you know, you look at the round mechanism and you need those type of birds. So you look over the thing and you try to get those birds. And in order to play this particular bird, I need to get this food. So you get that food and you just, you know, it's like you do the thing you need to do. And I have this goal. You know, I, I guess you can break down almost any game like that, but it just seems so straightforward. So little room to, you know, do, you know, the thing you want to do or, you know, off on different tracks. Well, in, in slightly more robust games with end-of-round considerations, things like Terra Mystica or Clans of Caledonia, things of that ilk, you're typically pulled in different directions. You know you know that you have certain priorities for this round based on, on the bonus tiles, but by the same token, you have all these demands that are, uh, that are pulling you in terms of the map status and in terms of your clan or race's special power. And sometimes when you play relatively simple games in rapid succession, as you seem to have done with Wingspan, sometimes that impression can be more pronounced. Now, I can't comment not having played as much Wingspan as you have. You're, you're, of the two of us, you're by far the connoisseur. But it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. I'll look into it more too, because I gotta look at some of these goal cards, because they all seem to rank from, like, the end of the game goal cards, which is supposed to be, like, a very big push. You know, they all, all, you know, flow in between five to ten points. Yet you get a point per egg, and it's only like one action to put it for. So it's almost like four victory points for every action you take. So it seems almost as though you can just, you know, max out your egg production. And maybe that's maybe that's a strategy. I don't know. I'll have to maybe I'll have to venture into the wingspan forms into no man's land and find out. You know these these you know high end wingspan strategies. Well, let me know when you get Leet Walker. In in our favorite game, wingspan. It's a game. That's put out by Stonemeyer Games, and the designer is Elizabeth Hardgrave. I felt like something tactile. We've been doing all this digital gaming, and I felt like manipulating pieces. I felt like manipulating cool pieces, and I felt like doing something very tactile and physical with lots of little haptic feedback touches. And so I played Flick 'em Up Dead of Winter. I cleared off my kitchen island, and I set up a post-zombie apocalypse city with all the buildings, and I put out all those zombies and started flicking like crazy. I love Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. It is my favorite version of Flick'em Up. It is my favorite version of Dead of Winter, which is to say it's a version of Dead of Winter that I like. And it is brutally, brutally difficult. I haven't even come close to winning a game of Flick'em Up Dead of Winter legit. But one of the joys of Flick'em Up Dead of Winter is that since it is a pure co-op, or when you're playing solo... You know, you can cheat judiciously. I'm not in favor of cheating in competitive games. Certainly not. And I'm not advocating that by any stretch of the imagination. But when it's a co-op game and everyone's on the same page, you can cheat and modify and do things on the fly. And that's fine. Whatever leads to a better narrative arc, so long as you trust yourselves to do that. That is, I confess, one of the reasons why I am not particularly chuffed by some of the shortcomings of Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. Some of the rules are ambiguous. And there are pages and pages of rules questions on BoardGameGeek, but I don't really care all that much because, again, when it's a pure co-op, you can just decide what you're doing and go and do that thing. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're playing it as the designer intended for those weird little corner cases. And I often find that when I start getting into the real minutia of very strange corner cases, sometimes that saps my enjoyment of a, of a game out of it. Now, I, I've never had that with Flick'em Up Dead of Winter, but there are a whole bunch of questions that I just don't care about the answers to, and I'll just decide on the fly. So if you're a stickler for rules precision, I, I can't recommend Flick'em Up Dead of Winter too, too highly. But absent that, one of the things that Flick'em Up Dead of Winter does that's absolutely marvelous, and I've yet to see it done nearly so well in any other dexterity game, even in the only game that matters, Seal Team Flicks, is the way that it handles the opponents. There's this thing called a zombie rush in Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. After every activation, if there's a standing zombie close to you, what you do is you take this tower that's kind of sort of like a dice tower, perhaps like you would see in Wingspan. There you go. These are segues. These are top-level pro segues, see, Walker. There we go. Yeah, you, you pulled that right together, man. It's That's... true. It's true. It's why I was considered for an award this year. And you take the zombie minis and you just dump them in this tower and they fall out. If this causes one of your survivors to fall over, they take a wound. Otherwise, the zombies just remain there flat on their face and they'll get up later. And this really does represent zombies lurching towards a subject that just made some noise. And there's different levels of zombie rush based on how much noise you made. It, it's delightful. It's marvelous. It is the best solo or co-op dexterity game AI I've ever encountered. In Seal Team Flicks, you roll a die, which is fine. It's okay. But it's not nearly as tactile and enjoyable and spatial 
as you have in Flick Them Up, Dead of Winter. Now, again, it's, it's brutally hard. You tend to have scenarios whereby failure is more or less not an option. And one of the things that I like the least about Flick Them Up, Dead of Winter is it's very failure happy. You know, if you, if you try to move and you hit anything, you just don't move. It's like, okay, nothing happens. And as you know, I have a bias towards things happening. If I fail at doing something, I'd rather there be some sort of consequence and the game move forward rather than things just stagnating. And so I, I would prefer if, for example, and I'm not proposing this as a house rule and I haven't tried this as a house rule, something along the lines of, well, if you flick to move and you hit something on the way, well, you take a damage or you spawn more zombies or something rather than just, well, you don't move. Especially since you're expected to clear the entire table in most scenarios and then go back home in a very, very small number of activations. The final thing I'll note about Flick'em Up Dead of Winter is something that it inherited from its progenitor Dead of Winter that I do really appreciate, and I swear that I felt like playing this game independently. I'm not commenting on this just because it's timely, although it would be foolish not to note that this is very timely, is that the cast is very diverse. It looks like an actual cross-section of humanity, rather than just your standard garden variety representations you often find in, in board games, which is an array of white dudes. You have Asians, you have African Americans, you have... Uh, men and women, and you have older individuals rather than everyone being, you know, the scruffy mid-twenties. You know the look that I'm talking about. The sort of board and video game default. An array of indistinct... Especially in that typical game, right? When you have a zombie zombie game, you're going to have, like, the cheerleader, the jock, and, you know, the typical, you know... Yeah, whereas... This really does look like a bunch of people, and they're they're very caricature, cartoony style, uh, but in a very very appealing way, very much in the art style consistent with the other Flick 'em Up cowboy games. Anyway, I really enjoy Flick 'em Up Dead of Winter. Rules ambiguities and incredible difficulty, all considered, because of how visually appealing it is. I like the diverse cast. I like the diverse set of scenarios, and I really do enjoy the quasi AI that you have in a dexterity game. And so I had a really, really good time with Flick 'em Up Dead of Winter, and I really appreciated, as I said, just being able to manipulate plastic and cardboard components again, which we get to do far too rarely in the past few months. And so that was Flick 'em Up Dead of Winter. Yeah, and one advantage that it has over uh, Seal Team Flicks is that you can play it on an open table. You know, Seal Team Flicks kind of, you know, uh, confining corridors and you know there are some long shots and steel steel uh seal team flicks but in flick em up dead of winter you can do like those eight foot sniper shots across the courtyard you know left hand corner you know the zombies peeking around the corner <laughs> and you knock his ear off love that's the one part i love about dead of winter well but again i, I agree with you and those shots are great i wish that the the scenario design gave you a little bit more leeway to try interesting stuff like that the scenario demands are often so tight, you barely have enough time to go and do what you need to do. You don't really have, have time to try for the risky shots. You don't have time to set things up for the ideal scenario, which is good when there's a pressure to go and do risky things in the middle of zombies. But it's bad in the sense that you look at them and say, ooh, I'd really like to try that shot. Eh, don't have the time. Better go leave. But yes, I agree with you. And, and for someone like with your predilections and with your background of number one skill and number two audacity, both of which I lack, it is very much a joy watching you lean over with that devilish grin you have on your face attempting to do that incredibly long shot and all the more satisfying when you actually do pull it off. So yes, that is one set. Sometimes. That is, that is sometimes, not all the time, but definitely sometimes. That is absolutely an advantage that Flick'em Up Dead of Winter has. You're right. I wanted to look into a game called The Taverns of Tiefenhall. It, it got a little bit of buzz, you know, at the beginning of this, at the end of the winter there. And uh, it's it was by the same designer of Quacks of Quigleberg, and it was sort of like compare compared in some ways, and I and I think it's a fair comparison because what in Quacks of Quigleberg you're drawing from the bag and sort of like push your luck, and that's what makes it fun. In in Taverns of Tiefenhall, what you're doing is you're filling your bar up and you're trying to build this deck in order to get the most out of your your cards, right? Because as soon as your tavern is, as soon as the tables are full, then you have to stop drawing. So you're trying to get a good mix of of non patrons and extra tables and more stuff. So you're getting, you know, more income. I think in the context of a tavern, they're just called patrons, not patreons. Walker. True enough. So glad you corrected me. So yes, so I think I think it's a fair comparison. I think it, it would be a Quacks of Quiglinburg with just more rules. Like if you have a more gamer people in your in your group that 
don't like the the randomness of quacks, then I think this is something to try out. I thought it was really interesting. I liked how it all played together. I really like how there was so many upgrades on your board. It was like almost, I don't want to compare, it's like an advent calendar kind of, right? You're all these little <laughs> things you can flip over on your, you know, it's like little windows that you're flipping over on your board that reveal all these, you know, upgrades you're going to get to your bar. You know, you draw more cards or get more beer or, or when you cash in, you get more money. And it's, it's, it's semi-interesting. The, the one thing I am worried about is replayability. Because, you know, once you get a strategy down, there's really, I can't see there being much different directions you can go once you find a way you like to play or or something that works for you. There's a very limited number of cards you can put in your deck. I'm sure there's all sorts of different avenues that you can pursue, you know, like I just talked about, you know, upgrading different parts of your board or, you know, you know, uh, concentrating on, on certain cards. But I I just don't feel as though there's a replayability there. What did you think, Mark? Walker, you know that the three things that I hate most in life are in ascending order, fizzy drinks, travel, and disagreeing with you. But I'm afraid I do have to disagree with you while sipping on some Kanoto. Actually, no, I don't need to worry about the fizzy drink. And I certainly don't have to worry about travel. Uh, I enjoyed the Taverns of Tiefenthal, but I think that what you're identifying in terms of the lack of replayability is the fact that there's not really many choices in the game at all, at all. Because... You compare it to Quacks, and you're right, there's a certain same sense of feeling, because, you know, you're pulling things from a deck, and eventually you're made to stop. A salient difference is, and I can't believe I'm I'm defending Quacks of Quedlingburg, in Quacks of Quedlingburg, you have to decide when to stop. Because if you don't stop at the right time, you will be punished. Taverns of Tiefenthal, there are zero choices when you are pulling from the deck. Everything is purely automatic. It is exactly like drawing a five-card-handed Dominion. Except the number of cards you may draw is just random based on what, what upgrades you've already purchased and what other things you've socked into your deck. And the thing is, here, here, here's the thing. I enjoyed playing Taverns of Tiefenthal in exactly the same way that I enjoy playing bad deck builders. Because I think Taverns of Tiefenthal is a bad deck builder. But deck, bad deck builders can be fun, especially when they give you the sense of something happening, even when there are no choices involved. You get to see your tavern fill up. You're hoping that you get a few more entertainers show up to fill the, the sides of your queue before that last patron shows up and grabs that last table spot. That part is enjoyable, but entirely on autopilot. And so a, a reasonably fine experience, but not what I would call good gameplay. The only decisions you have in Taverns of Tiefdahl are the classic decisions in your garden variety bad deck builders, what to buy. That is it. That's it. That's all. And broadly speaking, you have these two currencies in a very, very athematic way. What happens is your your patrons show up and just give you money for, for nothing, and you generate beer, and you use the beer to buy new people. It's almost as though no beer is actually being served in your tavern. Instead, you take the beer that's generated in your tavern to the streets and entice people there, and then they show up and they don't get any beer ever again. It's it, it's bizarre. But anyway, don't, I, 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 this is not a substantive criticism of the game. I don't think I, I, I try not to think too hard about the, the theming of most deck builders anyway. But all you do is decide what to buy. You buy some upgrades on your board, which you should absolutely do, because every time you buy an upgrade on your board, you get one of the huge victory condition cards. So it's not even that there's a trade-off in terms of infrastructure versus victory points. Upgrading your infrastructure also gives you victory points. Okay, fine. Reasonably straightforward choice. If you can afford one of those, go do that. There's no trade-offs involved. On the other hand, when you are using your beer to go buy patrons, you're only allowed to make one of those purchases around anyway, so buy the one that gives you the most points, all things being equal. So it even manages to undercut the element of choice. Now, I'm sure that your expert Taverns of Tiefenthal players can crawl out of the woodwork and say, well, you know, Mark, really, sometimes you really want to buy the cheaper one because the situational bonus is such that blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I've, I've already stopped paying attention. It's overwhelmingly straightforward once you get down to the actual decision-making of the game. The rest of it is just entertaining busy work. Colorful, diverting, mildly thematic busy work. So it was fine. I enjoyed my experience of it. But as a game, I actually think that there's less game there in Taverns of Tiefenthal than there was in Quacks, and Quacks of Quedlingburg isn't really to my taste anyway. And this is designed by Wolfgang Walsh from North Star Games. Like I already, like we already talked about, he designed Quacks of Quillenberg. He also designed Wavelength. Yes, he was involved in Wavelength, and I'm a huge fan of Wavelength. 
I realize you said that very pointedly. You're not actually going to address any of my substantive criticism. You're just going to throw wavelength in my face. That's fine. <laughs> no, no. I, no, it's because I agree with everything you said. Well, except for the fact that I do think there is more dis- decisions. I think building your deck in taverns is a little more intricate than it is building your bag. Because building your bag, you're, you're, you never draw the whole bag out in, in uh, taverns. When you buy the cards, they go right on top of your deck, and you know that those are going to be the ones that you draw first. So you have a little bit more control in taverns than you do in in quacks. Sure, but the cards that you pull can only be activated in some cases by virtue of random dice rolls. And the only area of substantive player interaction in uh, Taverns of Tiefenthal is this dice draft to activate your patrons, but really the net effect of that, I think is just randomness on top of randomness. Oh, I've got this patron that pays out really, really well. Is the die that I need going to come up? Eh, maybe, maybe not. There are some very, very minor ways you can tweak the dice, but absent that, it's just another layer of arbitrariness on top of what is already not a particularly deterministic game. Not really substantive purchasing decisions, not really a whole lot of player interaction, you know, standard bad deck builder stuff. I was going to say, that's that's the interaction they had to sort of like shoehorn in. Yeah. You know, between the players. Well, we'll let them draft dice together, and that's, you know, interaction that they're going to get. It's true. And that is the Taverns of Tiefenhall from North Star Games. Brief update on my Legacy of Dragonhold experiences. I took a week off from Legacy of Dragonhold, and I've been playing it a bunch this past week. And I have to say that for the first time, I had what could be described as sort of a mediocre choose-your-own-adventure experience. I played about five times over the course of the past week. Brief little chapters here and there interspersed with longer chapters. And I don't know if this is because it was one of the other writers of the writing staff doing it, but it was a fairly generic fantasy adventure thing where you go and and, and clear a dungeon-type thing of baddies. And I have to say it was by far the uh, least engaging part of Legacy of Dragonhold thus far. And But it stands out in sharp relief to all the other excellent writing, all the other engaging things that happen in Legacy of Dragonhold. Because I would analogize it to some fantasy adventure games or RPGs in video and computer gaming, where sometimes you have those NPCs that are standing around with dialogue trees and you feel like you have to go and exhaust them. You know, there's that topic that, that that's bolded out. You, ha- you feel like you have to just run it out just in case there's uh, a quest thread somewhere or some bit of information that's going to be dropped. But you don't really care what they're saying. You know, like, okay, okay, let's just get through this dialogue and just make sure that I know go through what they're saying. As compared to other games where you have such an enthusiasm for the characters and the writing is good enough that you enjoy spending time with them. I remember some computer and video RPGs where I couldn't wait for more dialogue options to be opened up with my companions just because I liked them and I liked talking to them. I liked hearing them talk. I liked spending time with them. And most of the time in Legacy of Dragonhold, that's exactly what's happening. I enjoy being around these people. I like hearing what they have to say. And for the first time in these choose your adventure role-playing books, I'm not like, okay, okay, spit out the information I need to say, but I'm happy to just have a random conversation with some of these characters. And so the fact that I, as I say, I did have this this one encounter that was fairly stock, unengaging fantasy RPG stuff with a little bit more Terranoth mixed in for good measure, it just stood out in sharp relief to the rest of the excellent experiences that I was, that I was having. But suffice to say, that was a small downturn, a small low point in a very, very, very enjoyable experience that I'm still going through. And I cannot wait to spend more time with these people in this setting and with the character that I've made and the story that unfolds. And that is Legacy of Dragonhold. Finally, I played Tank Duel Enemy in the Crosshairs. This is from GMT Games. And so naturally, when playing it, I uh, can imagine all the locals complaining bitterly and without any substantive merit about things like graphic design and how they want on the cover a dragon breathing fire on a woman with a chainmail bikini or something, because that's what passes for art in the appreciation of local gamers. Anyhow, Tanktool Enemy in the Crosshairs is basically World of Tanks done with upfront rules. And I will give them credit in the designer's notes, of which there are many. They do talk about how Upfront was a salient inspiration. And so that's exactly the kind of attribution that I appreciate in board game design, because it's very, very reminiscent of Upfront in the sense that you play movement cards on top of a unit, and now it's in movement, and you can play a terrain card on top of a unit that's moving, and now they are occupying that terrain. 
And I have to say the opening scenario was very unengaging and not particularly satisfying. It was just two tanks trying to kill each other. And as the inspiration would imply from World of Tanks, there are infinite respawns. It's a weird sort of... Uh, not only is it an ahistorical scenario, but there's this weird sort of situation where you have an unlimited number of tanks, but only two at a time. And if one dies, another one just magically shows up <laughs> at the appropriate range band. And so that happens a couple times. It's okay. We're all video gamers now. We're all used to these conventions. My partner with whom I was playing was very enthusiastic about the game and very much liked the detail of the different tanks because, of course, there's four variations of Panther and 17 variations of T-34 and all those things that make no sense to me. That's not really my bag. I don't know a whole lot about those kinds of war machines, so that's not that, that goes way over my head. I, I know that there are Tigers, and Tigers are better than Panthers, but that's about all I could tell you. <laughs> that's all I got. And the, the, the T-34 is the Soviets. That's, that's it. That's all I know. But it was very simple once you get past some of the rules grit. Like a lot of GMT games, it looks more complicated than it is, especially since the firing resolution procedure is, I think, a six or seven step procedure. But it's all just check this number, check this number, check this number, and it's all very straightforward. So once you got the hang of it, it was it was very, very enjoyable. I looked ahead to the subsequent scenarios, and the subsequent scenarios are much more robust in that they give you a reason to take ground. One of the problems I had with the scenario that we played was there was no real reason to be at one range opposed to another, except in that you, at close ranges, had a better chance to hit, but then again, so did your opponents. So the impetus for action was a little bit missing. But in, for example, scenario two, once you get to 400 meters from your enemy, you can then occupy a hill, which starts giving you victory points. I'm like, aha, look a scenario. And so I'm looking forward to trying that, and I'll probably be able to report back soon, because as I said, the person with whom I played was a big fan of Tank Duel Enemy in the Crosshairs, and this was put out last year by GMT Games, and the design credit is Mike Berticelli, but as the designer's notes indicate, this is very, very much the child of many parents, and it looks like a lot of heart and soul and work went into this, and it definitely shows in the finished product because there's lots of different tanks and lots of different full color, full color boards with all the tanks and different crew assignments and all those other things. But again, all very simple to execute. So for kind of sort of an upfront flavor with tanks instead of troopers, I'd say that Tank Duel is probably worth a look, especially if you're a fan of things like World of Tanks. I have to say that one of the reasons why I picked up this game in physical copy was because I seriously thought that Louis would be a huge fan of Tank Duel. And uh, once I am able to be in the same room as Louis, I'm looking forward to showing it to him. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, like I already alluded to, Terraforming Mars Big Box is coming out. And it's going to be hinted in around $100. You think, oh my god, Mike, why is an empty giant cardboard box $100? Well, you get all of these three-dimensional terrain tiles in it. 24 city tiles, 40, 40 forest tiles, 9 ocean tiles, and 14 special tiles. Plus all sorts of bonus cards and extra fun stuff for your terraforming Mars enjoyment. This is definitely in keeping with the traditional way of blinging out games, where the cost of the upgraded components is often inversely proportional to the gameplay effect of the components that they are blinging out. Agreed. So it's going to be on Kickstarter. Uh, it'll be on Kickstarter the day this probably gets released, if not very soon. Check it out. I'm sure it's going to be interesting. They are hinting around having all sorts of bonus cards as stretch goals, so we'll see how that works out. On the topic of special boxes, this isn't so much a news piece. I recently got in my Kickstarter pledge of Too Many Bones, Splice, and Dice. I haven't been able to get it to the table yet, but I probably will over the course of the coming week. And one of the things that was kickstarted in the Splice and Dice campaign was, as per usual, a giant box to hold everything. It is not yet ready. It will be coming a little bit later because these boxes always take longer to design than imagined. But in this case, I've seen videos of the prototype of the early mock-ups, and oh my goodness, everything is controlled by magnets. There's this giant brass ring that you use to open up all the magnetic drawers, and it has plastic reorganizers for everything. And so every character has a new dice tray so they can lay out the dice for all their unique... Oh my goodness. It's retailing for roughly $7 trillion because, honestly, it looks like that's how much it costs to produce. 
And Kickstarter, I can't remember how much people in the Kickstarter paid for it. It was definitely under 80 bucks. And uh, honestly, they are taking, anybody who bought it for that price is taking Chip Theory games out for a ride because, oh man, this thing. I love big, beautiful boxes. I just, uh Can't wait to see it. You know, the rest of their components are ridiculously awesome. I can't wait to see this box. It's true. One of my quick Kickstarter updates is that, because, you know, we got to report the good, the bad uh, from Awaken Realms. Uh, I finally got, you know, the giant statue of uh, Apollo. They did, you know, it was a fantastic job. You know, I just filled out the little form online, said mine was fused together, and bam, sent me a whole brand new one, showed up in the mail the other day. So another great job, and I'm glad that, you know, people are still doing their own, you know, component replacement programs. Good old-fashioned customer service rather than saying, go bother your local retailer in a time of pandemic? There's another huge project on Kickstarter I saw. It's called Dragon Geass. It's by Arclight and Max Factory. This is by Susumi Kawasaki. The only, the only, I was trying to think of where I saw his name before, and it was he did a game called Traders of Osaka that came up from Zeman Games. It was a very colorful, you know, sort of trade type game. This one is a giant plastic monstrosity, and. I feel as though it's, it might fall into the same problem that Shadows Over Brimstone did, where they brought out this board game and they said, hey, look, you get to glue the figures together, hmm. to which people said, um, no, no, I don't. <laughs> and I think that was, I think that's why I've heard only good things about Shadows Over Brimstone from you and from other people, that it's a good game system. I think it, it, it was to its detriment that they made these figures glue together. I think you're having memory problems, Walker. I have nothing good to say about Shadows of Brimstone. I didn't enjoy it at okay, all. Okay, it must be a different... Okay, it must have been a different game that... Roll to move, move another roll at the end of every round, rolls for this, roll for that, roll to hit, roll to wound, roll... Uh, I don't love D6s that much, Walker. True enough. So in this one, you're building these giant dragon demons, and the other side, you're building these really interesting anime-type heroes... And it's almost like, it looks like, it's sort of like a chess type game. You're moving along all these hexes, all the little pieces move on mini hexes that are sort of spaced in between the giant hexes. And you're playing these cards to move the giant mecha versus the giant dragon. And there's going to be this giant, you know, battle in the middle. Would you like to characterize the size of this game, Walker? Giant. Oh, okay. I missed that. It's big. Another plastic monstrosity that you get to glue together check it out it's interesting that the art is very uh it's done very well i'm i'm, I'm going to look into the gameplay just to see if there is actually anything there because it could be a very interesting uh abstract strategy game in behind all these ridiculous figures that are are being moved towards each other so i'm uh, looking forward to checking it out and that is dragon geass on the topic of plastic and size, in the answer to the question that nobody asked, Coolman or not has said, yes, we will do a Massive Darkness too." And I have to confess, I am somewhat enthusiastic. Massive Darkness, when you don't play the campaign version, is some good mindless fun. It is kind of like what I wanted Zombicide to be, but never was. And they're going to be doing a second season. And I am always down. For a Coolman You're Not Kickstarter, I realize that they have few fans left in the industry. And I, to be honest, I'm not really sure why. I, the, the mood of the people have shifted, Walker, and some people just aren't allowed to have delayed Kickstarters anymore. It's weird. Some companies get to delay Kickstarters, and it's fine. And everyone says, wait, I'm sure the product will be worth it, Cough Nemesis. It's going to be so good when it comes out. We wouldn't want to rush them, Cough Nemesis. And it'll be so fabulous. It's a labor of love. Everything's going to be fine. How dare you? This is a part of an adventure and a journey, Cough Nemesis. Meanwhile, Simon delays a product for three months, and they're crooks. But anyway. Anyway, Massive Darkness 2, I am looking forward to it. Yeah, that, that reminded me of him to another quick... Because of uh, Project Elite sort of had the same problem that uh, Champions of Midgard had, where there was a problem with the pr printing of some cards, so they've held up the entire shipment while the cards get reprinted, and then... and Simon never did that before. Like, I've had uh, three, I think it's either two or three, where they shipped out the cards after the fact, you know, later, separately at their cost, in order just to get the Kickstarter to us. They okay, well, before, just but. for context, just for context sake, the difference is as follows. What happened in Reavers of Midgard was they had the game, the game was finished, 
everything was ready. They sold the game in some contexts. And then they decided, okay, the tray's not good enough. So what we're going to do is we're going to hold on to everything we've made while we start a new production for the tray so that it meets spec. In this case, what happened was they had already shipped out some of the Asian copies of Project Elite in the case of Simon. And for those people, yes, indeed, they will be sending the cards later. But the cards for the North American... Uh, the, the North American shipment has not yet hit the distributor level yet. And so they said, well, what we'll do is we'll run, do a quick print run of these cards, and it's only going to cause a few days delay in the process of fulfillment, so we ship everything out at once. So I agree with you that they're kind of similar, but by the same token, there's strong dissimilarities between these two processes. So let's not oversimplify. And last but not least, I saw this game shoot up the hotness track and. I'm hoping some of our listeners will, you know, maybe they have some insight why it's so great. I wonder if it's because there's a contest. I wonder if because the same, where is it headed? Elf Creek Games. They put out uh, Atlantis Rising, the second edition. Maybe that's why everyone's overly excited about it. But there's a game called Merchants of the Dark Road. And everyone's a buzz about it. And I just, the the... The designer hasn't done anything else that is huge that I've seen. And same thing with the, the the developer. So I'm just wondering what the big buzz is. The game looks pretty interesting. I was looking through the rules. Uh, you're going to be placing these dice out and they sort of like, you know, pass through your little sheet and they're going to turn things into other stuff as they pass through over these actions. It has like the old school video game grid where you're like piecing in your armor and your sword to fit in this grid and you're, you know, shipping it out. And it seems interesting. I'm looking forward to it and I'm about 90% going to back it. So we'll, we'll find out what it's all about. Would you like to hear my impressions of Michael Walker? Hit me with it. <laughs> Michael Walker one week ago. Popularity contests are dumb. Just because everybody likes something doesn't mean that it's any good. People should be more discerning. I think that there's corruption involved, and it's all about driving interest. And just because a whole bunch of eyeballs get attracted to something, that doesn't mean there's any legitimacy behind it. Michael Walker five seconds ago. Ooh, it's on the hotness. It's got to be good. That's fake news. Final update from me is a brief update on the Kickstarter for Comet Blood and Sand. I have expressed a great lack of enthusiasm for the Comet Blood and Sand based on a number of things, but I have to say this. Just in terms of perfect full disclosure, I have now backed for Commit Blood and Sand because most of the substantive criticisms that I've levied at them, they've in fact changed over the course of the Kickstarter campaign. Now, this is not a case of them backing down immediately, but they've solicited feedback and they're being responsive to feedback. They changed the Sphinx so that it is no longer an embarrassing, weird plate mail bikini thing. They are putting color back in the power tiles, which was another cause of complaint. And even though they had been, they say they had been working on this Cthulhu-based expansion for two years, the overwhelming negative reaction said, oh, okay, 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 we'll retheme it to ancient Egyptian gods. And while some people are criticizing their lack of what they call editorial direction, I, for one, am willing to applaud the fact that they are using Kickstarter the way I think that there's some sort of platonic ideal of Kickstarter, which is to say, trying to be somewhat collaborative with the potential audience. And it can't hurt that all the changes that they've made have been changes that I approve of. And some people have said, oh, well, you know, you can never win because people will always complain. That means you should never listen to feedback, which is clearly ridiculous. You should try to sift out the widespread legitimate feedback from the minority illegitimate feedback. And so far, it seems like they've mostly been doing that. And I, for one, am willing to reward Matago and vote with my wallet and pledge for Commit Blood and Sand in the face of that. And also because, you know, we should probably review it at some point. So that's my brief update on the Kickstarter campaign for Commit Blood and Sand. Now on to the feature game of the week, which is... Aristea! Very you nice. know, I will, it was funny. I, want, I wanted to get a recording because, you know, remember the movie Never Ending Story? And I'm sure yes. one of the characters screamed that, you know, sometime during, I, you know, but really? I, I briefly, you know, scanned, scanned through it today. And it, it, it unfortunately, it was something else. And I thought it would have been awesome if it, it, it was even remotely close to that. It would have been fantastic. Now that's fake news. But unfortunately, it was not. Moving on. Mark, where does this fall into a timeline? So Aristea was designed by Alberto Abal, Jesus Fuster, and David Rosillo. This is Infinity's in-universe sports game. Infinity is my favorite tabletop miniature skirmish game. It's put up a Corvus Belly, and there have been frequent in-universe references to Aristea, which is this sort of futuristic blood sport. 
made possible by far advanced medical technologies of the near future, whereby people can be more or less resurrected after mortal injuries. And it's kind of, you know, murder ball slash blood ball slash whatever kind of far future thing, except there's no ball. Uh, and, you know, there are things like firearms. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I was initially disinterested when it was a sort of tie-in to an established miniatures game, uh, and and the fact that the designers didn't have a design pedigree. Uh, Abal and Fuster have now worked on Infinity Defiance, which is sort of the co-op board game spinoff of Infinity, another project that Corvus Belli is putting out, which will be their third game all told after Infinity and Aristea. And for what it's worth, just for context, Aristea refers to something in epic poetry where a hero manifests their greatness usually but not always, then resulting in their death. Uh, the term, the people who participate in Aristea, the sport, are called Aristos, which indeed has the same root as aristocracy. Aristocracy is rule of the best. Aristos are the best. And Aristea is their moment of crowning glory, um, you know, possibly on the way out. Anyway, uh, so that is the context of Aristea. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in the game? Welcome one and all to the greatest spectacle in the human sphere. What you're doing in this Ariste is you're trying to get together this, you know, ragtag band of four sport sport players <laughs> running around this 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 field, and it's sort of like an area control type game. There's going to be these different uh, areas that open up, and de- depending on the scenario, you're going to have to either you know control them or hold them and defend them. And you really are supposed to pick players that work well together, but you're going to fall into the same category that Mark and I do, you'll say, oh, that one looks really cool. I'm going to play with that one today. (laughs) And they're not going to work together at all well, but you'll still have fun playing it. And like Mark said, it sort of gives you that feel of Blood Bowl, but more on that later. It is a very interesting sport game. Yeah, so that 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 indeed was one of the reasons why I wasn't terribly keen on it when it when the project was first announced. I don't really like sports. I don't really like sports games even for made-up sports, but it's bizarre. It kind of feels like a sports game, but it also kind of feels like an area control game, and it also kind of sort of feels like a skirmish game. And one of the reasons why that's so, I think, is because despite the fact that across the different scenarios, it more or less boils down to the same thing, which is you need to have more people in various scoring zones than your opponent does, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do that. One of the ways is swarm the zone with your own people. Another way is get your opponents out of the zone. And in both of those cases, there are a variety of different things you can do that among them and including murder. Your opponent will not have people in the zone if you have shot them in the face. And so that feeds the the way that different characters can get the same job done in very different ways. And I confess that's one of the reasons why, despite the fact that it is yet another two-player-only game, it has earned its spot in my collection and in my general rotation of two-player games that I think are absolutely worth having. Agreed. And the decision space is all there because not only is it like sort of an area control, but sort of a deck-building game too because not only are there three basic decks that you're going to choose from at the beginning of the game to form the basis of your of the deck you're going to draw from, every character of which you're going to choose four, they also have... Uh, decks of cards that you're going to choose two from every player and they're going to mix into this basic deck that you've chosen and these are going to be the cards that you're going to use to give you yourself you know these little advantages or little bonuses every round and ways to enhance your combos and maybe players that wouldn't work well together these cards will help you know smooth those edges out and help you you know work a little bit better together. And this is one of the reasons why Aristea has kind of sort of supplanted Warhammer Underworlds for me. Not that I won't play Warhammer Underworlds anymore. It's just that Warhammer Underworlds, you do not get to choose what characters you're bringing, which is fine. You choose a team and the team is is, is preset. And the deck building is massive. The number of cards you need to bring to bear is you need to make your own deck of 32 different cards, and they have certain requirements, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cards available, and deck building is 
has very, very few restrictions. Whereas in Aristea, you get to pick from this colorful cast of characters, and I'll talk a little bit more about the, the cast later, and you do get to do some very minor deck construction, but it is the kind of deck construction where you can literally go up and get a glass of water while your opponent builds their entire deck. Because you have substantive choices, but it's sufficiently constrained and it's it's tied to the characters you've made that you're not going to be drowning in options the way you might in an unrestricted deck construction environment. Agreed. Let's talk about the characters. Let's talk about the characters. I think overall, I think they're overall fairly balanced. I know some of them, they're they're so different, but I think some of them work very well in different ways. And I think either some are fast or some are more strong. I think they've done a great job at balancing them out. I don't think I've for you know the fifteen or so that I've seen played. I wouldn't. I couldn't say that one is way more. Uh, powerful than another one. Some are more complicated than others. Like you definitely want to, you know, weed out some for beginning players and, and because there's so many, uh, different states that you can throw on characters or, or very intricate combos that maybe that particular character needs to do. But the choice of is definitely there. You can even almost have themed teams, right? You can, you know, all these guys sort of like, they look as though like all robots or all people that seem to work together. You can also have a team that sort of makes you feel like you're playing a traditional game. You, like there's ones that definitely look like tanks or blitzers or runners, healers and support. And so you get this feeling that these guys are supposed to work together or, you know, they've, you've got some sort of a history together or it does give you that it, not as much as you would in, in, in a Blood Bowl game, but sort of almost gets you there. And some of them are that way because they were came in the same expansion. And some of them are that way just because they happen to have synergies based on your own playstyle. So the game now, currently, as it stands, has a cast of 32 different characters, and you can pick any four. And the same players can pick the same characters if they want to, if you have copies of the, of the same game. The base game comes with eight characters, so enough for two people to play a full game. But I have to say, even the base game characters are awesome. This is the kind of game where you... Just like I, I said about Root, when I play a game of Root, I'm always immediately afterwards have the same dilemma. I want to play the same faction I just played over again. I also want to play the faction that just beat me, or I want to play the faction that gave me such a hard time. After I play a game of Aristea, I always think, those characters are awesome. I want to play them again. Oh, but then there's these shiny other things, and I saw my opponent do that awesome trick with that other character. I want to play them again. And... The base game characters are still current. They're still they're they're still uh, very very active in the meta. There's a very strong tournament scene in Spain, uh, not anywhere that I've ever been, uh, but <laughs> in some places it's very competitive. And new characters are viable, and base game characters are viable. And I have to say that the variety in the base game is pretty good. But once you start putting expansions in, the variety is marvelous. And just one minor one final note about the variety. One thing that the universe of Infinity has always done very 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 well is that it presents a cosmopolitan future, which is not something that sci-fi always does. In the grim darkness of the future, there is only war and white people. Uh, my experience of, of a lot of sci-fi range is that it's just universally white males tromping around in power armor, and that's not really something that interests me. I was fully sold on the Universe of Infinity as a skirmish game when I saw a Sikh man in a turban wearing power armor, and it was awesome. And... The universe of Infinity is, is incredibly cosmopolitan. In Aristea, you have just, you have indigenous Australian, indigenous North Americans, East Asians from a variety of different countries, people from the Asian subcontinent, uh, Africans, Europeans. You also have a large panda. So every ethnic group represented. Uh, you know, panda representation is a very important thing. And one thing that Aristea actually does better than base in, that, than the Infinity Skirmish game, in the Infinity Skirmish game, they tend to represent women not terribly well. Like, you might have a man, a unit, say a fusilier, and he's, he's stocky, and he's got a thick breastplate and, like, pouches all over the place. And then the woman's doing that weird pose to show up both her chest and her butt at the same time, and suddenly the pouches are gone, so you can see her hips more clearly, and ugh. A little tiresome, a little embarrassing. But Aristea, despite the fact that these are all professional sports figures and celebrities and social media stars, are actually not that bad. So it's it's a really, really diverse cast of interesting people from different backgrounds. And that's the kind of thing, honestly, that gaming needs more of whenever possible. So that's another strong point of the cast of Aristea. 
All right, so now you've picked your team, you've built your deck. Now you're going to get a scenario of which in traditional sports games, there's only one. You know, one team sets up one side, the other team sets up on the other, they mash in the middle, the ball squeezes out, and someone gets a touchdown. And, and most, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've played another sporty type game where that scenario changes. But in Aristea there, there's a whole list of different ways to play the game, and I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, there's there's... It's just the right level of variety, I think. It doesn't reinvent the wheel. It's not like you're doing something entirely different, but the way that the scoring zones work and subtle variations in the scoring lead to a substantially different experience. From one extreme, you have there's only ever the center scoring zone and you score points for kills, which is very much a meat grinder type scenario, versus at the other extreme, all scoring zones everywhere on the board are open at all times. And it's a question of controlling as many of them as possible, which encourages a more open, a more spread out play. And then a whole bunch of things in between. So I, I agree with you. If you want to play it as a grinder, if you want to take a whole bunch of killers and go out on a murder spree, you can absolutely do that. If you want to take a whole bunch of characters like Gata, who look at her sideways and she'll get sent straight to the infirmary, but she can move real, real fast, well, you can do that too. Or you can do a mix. Again, the the variety of the cast dovetails very nicely with the variety of play styles, despite the fact that you're not overburdened with a whole bunch of specific scenario type rules. And it really feeds into that that uh, game mechanic that we've been that we like uh, recently, like in Blitzkrieg and in Land, Air, and Sea, where you realize you're going to lose a particular turn of the game. You pull out and you say, "Okay, well, I'm not going to win that. I'm going to prepare for next round, right?" Because how, like we just talked about, okay, your opponent's going to score that area. Where is the next one going to be? So you can position your team ready to get the advantage for the next turn. So, I, And I really love that part of the game. Absolutely. And it also leads to some of the things that, again, I like in your more sophisticated skirmish-type games like Warhammer Underworlds, like other games of that ilk, where positioning becomes super, super important. Blood Bowl had this too, but I found in a way that was kind of tedious, you know, arranging blocking in Blood Bowl was clever, and it led to an interesting kind of spatial puzzle for people who like spatial puzzles, but it just led to a whole bunch of really uninteresting roles and a lot of procedural upkeep and, and working from the outside in. Here in Aristea, you instead have that lar marvelous tension where moving an opponent's figure one space can be the most deadly action in the game. It can completely cut them off at the knees in the right time, or having the right blocker in the right space at the right time can completely change the tenor of a round. And very often in skirmishy-type games, even good skirmishy-type games, you don't really have that sense of delicate, all-important positioning. And Aristea manages to really emphasize that, which I think is, is one of the best aspects of your sports-types games that it has managed to preserve. Agreed. All right, so now you have your scenario. You put your your players on the field. It's go time. Now you're going to lay out every character comes with these uh, initiative cards, right? And it sort of feeds into their balance. So if they're if they're stronger on the field or they have certain abilities, they're going to have a lower number. And if they're a little bit weaker, they're going to have a high number, which is going to let you decide because every both sides lay out four cards and then you're going to go back and forth uh, moving players depending on the order that you've placed them in. So you have to pre-plan the order in which you're going to move your four team members. And that goes back and forth and you flip up the card and whoever has the highest number gets to decide if they're going to move uh, uh, first or second. And I think that's a fantastic mechanism as well. It's a nice way to just subtly reinforce the asymmetry of the characters. Some have better initiative, some have worse initiative. Some characters manipulate the initiative values of other characters. And it's also a great way of just keeping the game moving. You decide your order at the start, and then once you've done that, you don't have the agonizing of, oh, do I activate this person now or this other person now? Uh. Yeah, that's exactly the point I was going to make as well, right? It'll, it keeps the game moving along. No hemming and hawing about, you know, well, you know, or... or you know, counting out spaces and, and going for the optimal move every time. It's like, well, I have decided that this guy is going to go next. So, you know, go ahead and, and do what you need to do. Well, it's funny that you mentioned counting out spaces because this has been one of the bugbearers of miniatures gaming for a very, very, very long time. And most modern designs have been moving away from it. What I call the, you know, the claustrophobia school of stripping things down, of trying to make sure that movement is all important and you don't waste a whole lot of time counting squares. That is one of the things that I don't really enjoy too much about Aristea. You do a lot of square counting, especially for calculating, can I get this character into the scoring zone? Okay, they can't get that way. Can they do 10 spaces this other way? Okay, no, the obstacle's in the way, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not 
you don't do that a lot. It's not super tedious, but it's definitely not something that I really enjoy. And Aristea does it probably more than any other skirmishy type game that I seriously enjoy. All right. So now you flipped up your initiative and now it's time to go and kill the other team. Now, you have different ways you can do this. You can shoot your gun, you can hit them with your fist, you can launch lightning at them, you can attack them with tentacles. You can or hack your, them. Yes, all sorts of stuff. You're, how you're going to do this is roll some dice. And I love, there's a very, they have very simple rules for rolling dice because there's either uh, the simple way where it's a green ability, where it's not, where it's just sort of like not a confrontational type thing. It's just something that's going to affect them and they can't do anything about it. So you just roll the dice and they don't roll anything on their side and it does what it does. And the second one is the face-to-face where you're going to roll, you know, your attack versus their defense. And you and there's some very interesting like uh, switches and crits that are going to change how these dice manipulate each other. Whereas crits, you get to cancel their dice. Whereas switches, not only does your character have their own personal switches where they have a very unique ability that they can, uh, you know, key off of every time they roll a dice, but even each ability sometimes has a switch that will either make it more powerful or let them do it a second time or all sorts of different ways. I, th- I thought it was very interesting and it, it, it moves along quickly. It doesn't slow the game down. The thing that I most like about the system of switches is when a character's innate switches interface with what you are willing to do to them. For example, if you know that a character has a switch that is very useful to them, that is inherent to the character, they can trigger that switch, that special ability, off of any role you subject them to. And so suddenly you have to worry, if I attack them, am I just handing them an opportunity to activate the switch? If I try to sneak past them, if I try to do a disengage role, am I handing them the opportunity to do a switch? And so I really like how, in addition to giving you a menu of special effects that you can activate roll on roll, it really influences how you have to tackle overcoming certain characters that are in your way. Agreed. So that's all the good stuff I have. I just have some, I do have some things that I wish weren't there. They do have line of sight in this game. We always talk about how sometimes line of sight bogs down games or makes rules overly complicated. I think this is a prime example of this because not only is there a line of sight, but there's all sorts of different, you know, uh, degrees of line of sight. You know, partial, you get cover or, you know, and they, you know, I think it makes a game that is a little complicated already a little too much more than it needs to be. I agree. So it's supposed to be the sports game of quick back and forth, you know, keeping the game moving like a racing game. You don't want a whole bunch of rules to bog it down. You want to be racing around the track in sports games. You want it to, you know, be moving around back and forth quickly. You don't want to be, you know, trying to figure out if you have partial line of sight or total line of sight. I think it's something I wish they had done away with completely. I agree. It's a testament to the quality of the game that Aristea has the two things that I hate most in skirmish games, square counting, well, hex counting in this case, and line of sight rules. And I very much prefer, again, in the claustrophobia school, where they do away with both of those things wherever possible. Or even very, very simple games like Titan's Tactics that do away with those considerations entirely through different means. It's a testament to the quality that I'm so willing to put up with all this. And the line of sight rules, again, you know, by themselves, the line of sight rules are not particularly complicated, but then you have square, you have hexes that obscure your vision, but don't block movement. And then you have ones that block movement, but don't block a line of sight. It's, it's, and then characters stand in the way and they block some things, but not others. It, it, yeah. It's a layer of complexity that the game could have done without. Absolutely. And then they have, uh, the, I just realized there's some other things we didn't talk about. Like in typical games, when you when you knock a player out, they go to the KO box and they move over to the injured box. And then there's the, all of these status counters and they have an interesting thing where they, you know, usually linger around. Some, some do, some don't. When they, you know, at the end of the turn, you flip them over. And I thought that was a very interesting uh, mechanism as well. Yeah, and the dynamic of how that works in the context of characters being knocked out I thought was good. The scale of the game is just right, whereby a character can be killed... And they're going to be of lesser importance for the next round, but they can still come back with a vengeance based on, again, how the states are managed and the fact that respawns can are very flexible. You can respawn your character at reduced effectiveness in many places around the game board. And so they don't come back right away. It's not like they teleport right back in your face, but you don't feel like just because a character was killed in turn two that you're never going to deal with them ever again. 
There's one more thing that I wish Aristea had that a lot of other really good modern skirmish games have, and that's some kind of resource management element. Because games like Titan's Tactics, which has a very, very interesting hand management element of how to power your abilities. Games like Earth Reborn, that has an interesting command token management system about how to manage your activations and how you want to bid for interruptions and things like that. Or even a game as simple as Akko, where you roll custom dice at the top of the round and you use that to power special abilities and you have to manage that over the course of your activations. I respect the fact that Aristea has these tactics cards and so there's a little bit of hand management there, but it doesn't feel as satisfying as some of those other robust systems. The action point system of Aristea is certainly a little bit more sophisticated and it's simple. You get to move once and do one action. But it's not quite as robust as some of those other systems that I really, really enjoy. And so that's that, I think, if they could have taken the complexity of the line of sight system and instead shifted it over to some kind of resource management system, then I think I might have been in skirmish nirvana. But I understand why they made the decisions they made, and it is what it is. All right, so Blood Bowl from Games Workshop is sort of like the holy grail. And this would all of these games like Guild Ball and the 700 different Kickstarters that have come out trying to emulate this sporty-type football fantasy-type game. And Blood Bowl has some things that I wish Aristea does not have. Like, we talked about team building. Sure enough, you get to build your your deck, but that's pretty well it. You're picking these, like, pre-made characters, so it doesn't really feel as though it's your team. Nor do you get any player advancement. One of these huge things about Blood Bowl and Necromunda is that your par- your characters get better over time, right? So there's no... Every game that you play is completely contained, right? There's no long-term goal or anything. So you don't really care about what happens, you know, up to these players. And there's no permanent injuries. In Blood Bowl and Necromunda, there's these fantastic end-of-game rolls where you're going to find out how many legs were broken or or, you know broken spleens or you know <laughs> permanent injuries as well like next game you know you know you're not gonna move so fast because you have an injury and that's that i thought was very interesting as well i am so happy not to worry about campaigns i'm sick to death of campaigns there's I like no the ball mark. okay it's a sport game with no <laughs> ball okay sure. come on seriously just like hockey this all being said this all being said aristea is way cleaner okay because in these other sport games you have like 12 to 10 players aside all right and they're all over the board and they're lying on their sides on their fronts or their backs or uh, you're, you know i i'm not sure and each one of them like in aristea they they have what you would call a tackle zone right everything adjacent to the character and you got to move away and that's simple because there's only, you know, four players a team, you know exactly where everything is and, you know, there's no wiggle room. When you have like 12 players and you're trying to, you know, shunt this guy through with the ball and, and split the middle and, you know, is he up or down? Am I going through that tackle zone into how many tackle zones? So that part I do love. If I had to choose in the long run, I would give up all of that stuff, unfortunately, even though it is amazing campaign type stuff, I would still... I think fall back on Aristea from now on for sure for my sporty type games. If you want to go all in with all the expansions, like any other expendable skirmish game, you are looking at a very considerable investment. But I played with just the base game for quite some time before I got any of the expansions. And I really do appreciate the tremendous variety of the characters. They they really do seem like they could be, you know, sponsored professional athletes that that are actively involved in the celebrity lifestyle. And if you want to go and get further details on the universe and the backgrounds of these individual characters and where they come from and what's their motivation, all of that is on the Aristea website. And so the level of texture is very, very good and very fleshed out. This is completely not what I expected when I first heard as an Infinity player that they were going to be making an Aristea board game. I thought it was just going to be this entirely forgettable side thing where maybe you'd recognize a couple of characters from the skirmish game, but nothing really mattered. But on Honestly, they brought the same attention to detail that they gave in terms of fleshing out the universe of Infinity to this game of Aristea. And I don't really approach it as a sports game, although it is manifestly that. I approach it more as a kind of a skirmish game where tactical positioning really matters. And 
in under that category, it is absolutely one of my favorites. And despite the fact that they don't have a whole lot of similarities, it really is kind of my substitution now for Warhammer Underworlds, because Warhammer Underworlds has gotten to a place now where it's pretty much all about deck building, and I just can't keep up with that many cards. And the, the notion of having to build a new deck fill, fills me with ire. And the universe of Warhammer just doesn't do anything for me. But Aristea is everything I want out of this kind of game, despite the fact that it has some of the old holdovers from older designs like Line of Sight and, and, and Hex Counting. But I'm willing to forgive it because of how many good decisions you have to make about tactical positioning as a consequence. Agreed. Maybe they'll come up with a computer implementation, Mark. That'll make you excited, won't it? Then you won't have to worry about the line of sight rules. It'll tell you what what's in line of sight and not in line of sight. That sounds exciting, right? Michael Walker is clearly losing his mind, so it is time to pull the plug on this episode. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on patreon we read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can thanks again for tuning in and we hope to see you again soon peace you've been listening to so very wrong about games produced by michael walker and edited by mark bigging special thanks goes to what does it eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song fos as our theme you can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.